On this edition of the Scott Radley Show podcast, we are chatting D-Day. We're actually going to be chatting with someone who is over in Normandy about the significance and why it still matters today. It's always a tricky question, but it is the 75th anniversary and we will be exploring that one. Also, uh, the Canadian Open opens on Thursday and among the locals who are playing, and there are a number, is a guy who lives really, really close right in Ancaster, playing his first PGA Tour event. So, will he be lying in bed, sweating all night, scared to death about teeing off in front of all those people? Well, stick around and find out. Today on the Scott Radley Show on 900 CHML. I'm assuming, I'm hoping, I'm trusting that you know that tomorrow is the 75th anniversary of D-Day. It is important that you know this. And again, I'm assuming and I I believe that most of you would, but if you don't, you now do. Don't forget. And this is a massive moment for a whole bunch of reasons. The first is obvious. It's a 75th anniversary. It is a momentous occasion moment in not only the world's history, but in our country's history. Uh, And we should remember that. We should be remembering the sacrifices that have allowed us to live as we do in this country. And that certainly is a massive part of it and defined in some ways our country, built our country. Uh, The second, I suppose, is a little bit less upbeat. This is the 75th anniversary. Most of the men who were involved in that would have been in their late teens, 20s, probably. That means that this is probably the last major anniversary of that moment that we're going to celebrate because 25 years from now, when we get to number 100, it's almost certain that they will all be gone. So it's a big, big moment. Uh, tomorrow, there will be flyovers. You'll see it over the city of Hamilton with a bunch of planes. Uh, you will notice it. Well, I want to uh, talk a little further about this. Joining us from Normandy, it's, it's great to have him along. Uh, Ted Barris is, a, is an author. He is a journalist. He's a broadcaster. He's the author of Dam Busters, Canadian Airmen and the Secret Raid Against Nazi Germany, The Great Escape, A Canadian Story, Victor at Vimy and Juno, and Canadians at D-Day, June 6th. Uh, Ted, thanks for joining me today. Scott, thanks for having me. It's, a, it's a, an auspicious moment because uh, you've called me literally as this incredible story began to unfold on the coast of England. I'm in France now. I, we came across my group. Uh, I'm leading a tour of about 50 Canadians. And we came across the channel on the ferry today replicating the path that Canadians took here 75 years ago. But it was just beginning at about this time here. It's 6 o'clock there, but it's about midnight here. And the ships were leaving the coast, some 7,000 of them. Uh, 8,000 aircraft were in the air, uh, fighter command, bomber command, uh, gliders, uh, every manner of ship and aircraft, uh, and about 150,000 Canadians, Americans, and British troops were on their way to where I'm sitting tonight. It's almost unfathomable to us now because for, well, I mean, 99.9% of the people who are alive today, we've never seen anything remotely like, maybe in a movie, but we've never seen anything remotely like that. No, we haven't. And and, and you've raised a, a fabulous point because too many of us, um, even those in, in my generation, I was born after the war, we think of a lot of this history as really not having anything to do with us, nothing, not touching us at all. Well, my, my parents were certainly touched by it because they lived through it. My dad was a medic during the Second World War. But when I speak to um, young people, what I try to do is have them imagine that maybe at 16 or 17 years old, they might have an older brother or sister who's 20 or 22, 
And I often ask them when I'm in schools and high schools and colleges and, and so on, I ask them, could that older brother who's 18 or 19 or 20 now make a responsible decision? And, and most of the, them laugh, no, hysterically, because they're, they're, they, th- they think their older brothers and sisters are, you know, are, are losers. <laughs> but what, then what I ask them is, do you think they could make a life and death decision? And then they, there's, the laughter stops. And I say, what I want you to do now, whether it's a group of five or six students or five or six hundred, is to have them imagine that the stories I tell them often about D-Day are not about men and women who you see at Remembrance Day events who are in their 80s and 90s and graying or balding and teetering and frail, but uh, the older brothers and sisters who hmm. they don't think could make responsible decisions. That generation did, and they were life and death decisions, and it happened 75 years ago, and it changed history. Uh, let me ask you maybe a strange question. I don't know. I, I honestly don't know this, but do you think those soldiers that day who left to go and be part of this, do you think they truly thought that it was going to be what it was and that there was a very good chance they were going to die that day? Or do you think that like so many 18-year-olds, even back then, there was probably a sense of immortality, at least until they got to the beach and realized how horrible it was? I think I think both. Um, that's a, it's a really good question because for many young people in any generation, there's a sense of invincibility. Right. Whatever, whatever bad is going to happen is going to happen to somebody else. And that was certainly the feeling among many of these men who had trained for years to be in this operation. On the other hand, none of them knew the outcome. Um, it, I was reminded the other day that Ike Eisenhower, that Dwight Eisenhower, who was the, the general who was commanding this whole operation, an American, uh, while he had been planning it for years with British and Canadian commanders, even up to the evening of the 5th of June, 1944, he carried in his pocket a letter which he would read to the media and to the kings and queens of every uh, nation um, that was in the Commonwealth, and, or at least the king and queen and the Commonwealth nations and so on, admitting guilt at having sent thousands and thousands of young men to their deaths if this whole thing had failed. He actually had that prepared speech just in case. Nobody knew it would succeed. It was that unknown, and it was that daring. It was that um, audacious that they could cross the channel and catch the Germans napping and get into Normandy and begin the uh, restoration of the liberation of, of Northwest Europe. Ted, I'm wondering, did people back then, as far as you understand it, did people back then here back in North American shores really understand how bleak things were when the people got to the beach? Did they really get those stories before the soldiers got home and started recounting them? The situations in more recent times with uh, wars in the Middle East where the media were embedded in, say, the American forces going into Iraq or Kuwait in the, uh, in the early, in the 1990s. Um, unlike that embedded nature of reporting where the media essentially reported what the army wanted them to report because there was nothing else for them to see, on D-Day, the media were in fact aboard the ships going in with the Canadians. There were members of Canadian press. There were members of the Globe and Mail and Toronto Star reporting staffs, Maclean's Magazine, CBC Radio, French and English. Reporters left the shores of England, like the soldiers, not knowing exactly where they were going. They had maps, they understood that they, they were going to be hitting beach terrain, but not until they left the shores 
was that information released to the commanders of the individual regiments and right down to the sergeants and the privates, nor was it released to the media. But once they left that shore, it was available and it was reported. In addition to which, Canada had um, both uh, cinematographer and still photography uh, experts aboard landing craft and the first footage. You know every year, you'll see it later today, Scott, that famous footage of the inside of the landing craft with men with ladders moving around inside. Um, you'll remember that very clear footage of the door going down and the men bursting out onto, into the water mm-hmm. going up the shore onto the beaches of Normandy. That footage was shot by Bill Grant, who was a Canadian film and cinematography photographer who went in, and his footage is among the best and the most uh, clear and obviously the most memorable of that moment. So, yes, and that film was also shown within, I would say, 48, 72 hours in England and the American uh, states and Canada um, with, a, with a film that was available. So, yes, it was covered extraordinarily, and, of course, in the newspapers. If we had, you mentioned a few moments ago that uh, Eisenhower had a, a letter in case this had not gone well. We know, we know how it went. It was something that we celebrate now because it was a success. Had it not gone well, would we be remembering today at all, or would we be remembering it very differently? What do you think would have happened? Um, I'll be honest with you. I don't do conjecture very much, and I don't do it very well. Um, what, what might have happened if this all had failed? Well, let me put it this way. We already knew what that was like. We had gone through Dieppe. We had sent Canadians, 3,000 of them, uh, into more than that, actually, um, into um, a fortified seaport on the coast of France as a test to attempt to find out what those German defenses were in the summer of 1942. And those nine hours for Canadian historians and for the Canadian military were the worst in our history. Those nine hours were the bloodiest in Canadian military history. We learned by disaster what might happen if we attacked a fortified fort. So as a lesson, we realized that we weren't going to liberate Europe by attacking fortified seaports, but in open, virtually uh, sparsely populated beaches. We knew there would be defenses because Hitler's Atlantic Wall had been built for five or six years. Um, but there was a better chance that the the landing forces could get farther inland faster. And if all of the diversions and all the subterfuge would work to divert the Germans, as was the case, to an intending attack they thought was coming farther to the northeast mm. at Calais, there was a chance. And so um, they, the commanders and the, and the forces who went ashore knew the taste of defeat. Um, they were not ready to deal with it again and, and hoped it wouldn't happen. We only have a few seconds left. You're going to have to keep this to about 30 or 40 seconds, sadly. But uh, we always hear, and it's a common phrase, war is hell, and we all understand, we all get that. And yet so often when you see obituaries now in papers of elderly people who survived the war but lived it, the pictures that they have chosen to show themselves, to remember them, are in their military uniforms. It was such a horrible time, and yet when they want people to think of them, that's what they choose. Why do you think they do that? What was it about that time that makes that the, the, the crystallized moment of their life? Well, they were living on the edge. They had a sense of some of the history that might be occurring on this day. Uh, and to wear that uniform, as Canadians have, the veterans have proudly, is a symbol of perhaps, not, if nothing else, if nothing else, a recognition of remembrance of their comrades who didn't get back 
it was it, Canadians are like that. We don't like wave flags very often. We don't brag and boast very much, but we certainly remember with respect. And that's what's going to happen here all day, beginning now, uh, as the remembrances and observances begin. Those uniforms will symbolize what was lost and what was gained. Ted Barris, uh, I sincerely appreciate you taking time. I know it's very late there right now, but I appreciate you taking some time to join us this evening. Enjoy, and again, I, I don't know if enjoy is the right word, but enjoy the ceremonies and uh, and the remembrances. Thanks for the time. Scott, a pleasure. Thank you for calling. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. My next guest is going to be playing in the RBC Canadian Open this week, starting tomorrow, provided, of course, the, the course is not deluged by any more water. Good news, it's supposed to be dry and warm for the rest of the week, so all is well. Uh, Michael Blair is an Ancaster guy who's going to tee off at 1.40 tomorrow afternoon, playing in his first PGA Tour event. He joins me now. Michael, how are you today? I'm good, Scott. How are you? I am well. When, when you contemplate or when you hear people say it's your first PGA Tour event, does that make you nervous or does that make you excitement or have chills or goosebumps? or What's, what's the feeling when you, when you think about that? Um, yeah, I mean, it's exciting and, uh, you know, it's always something that I've been working towards. So, you know, I didn't, wasn't a thing like I knew exactly when it was going to happen, but, you know, it was a, a plan that I've had that I've been working towards, you know, that end goal eventually. So, um, you know, I don't want to say that I knew that I would ever make it to a BJ Tour event, but that's always been something I'm working towards. So, uh, yeah, it's obviously exciting, but, you know, it's something that uh, I've been working hard towards and, you know, it was part of the plan. When Do you remember when you first gave any kind of thought to the fact that this could be something, that golf for you could really be something more than just a hobby? Um, I don't know, really. I just uh, I stopped, started playing um, after I stopped playing hockey and then, uh, Probably, yeah, when I went to uh, university in the States on a golf scholarship and uh, started seeing... That would do it. Um, yeah, just other competition on like more of a natural national scale, playing a few national amateur events where you got to see, play against guys that were, uh, you know, you know, they were highly touted, highly ranked, you know, they were, you know, and expected to be the next best thing and sort of comparing yourself with them and thinking, you know, you know, maybe they're not quite as good as, as I thought and maybe I could do that. Or maybe well. you were just better. Well, yeah, maybe. <laughs> Do you, does it make it any more, whatever, nerve-wracking, special, exciting? Does it do? Does it up the ante? The fact that you're an Ancaster guy, and this is this tournament is in Ancaster, and it's really, really close to home. So everybody probably you've ever met will show up to watch you. Yeah, I mean, I, some people I guess would think it'd be nervous, but I think it's probably the best uh, situation possible. I mean, you have playing golf in front of a bunch of people who are cheering you on. I mean, isn't that what you'd want for doing something that you know? You're, you know, doing something that you've been dreaming of, of you know, having all your family and friends around cheering you on. I think, I don't know, it kind of seems like the best case scenario for me. Better than heckling. Yeah, exactly. I mean, <laughs> anyway, if I played any other event, no one's going to know who I am. And still, most people won't know who I am, but at least I'll have at least a couple people there that'll uh, <laughs> be cheering for me. Any idea how many requests for passes and things you've had from people? A lot. <laughs> more more than I have passes for. <laughs> I try my best to get extras and uh, to help everybody out. But yeah, it's uh, it's up there. And you, I mean, look, I don't want to be silly about this. You're not a you're not a kid anymore. You're 25 right now. I, but I'm 27. 27. Pardon me. But I'm I'm guessing that even as a 27 year old, when you get the opportunity to do this, there have been a few moments when you have probably let your mind wander a little bit to think of, you know, boy, if this happens and this happens and I put uh, this happens, d- d- do you ever let yourself do that to think of, boy, if everything goes right, how this could work? 
Yeah, of course. I mean, even before I entered the qualifier, you're thinking of, you know, I was thinking of coming up 18, you know, having the 10 or 15 footer to win the tournament. That's even before I entered the tournament. So you're always dreaming of that kind of stuff. So um, it's not you know, it's not unhealthy. So it's not unhealthy no, no. for a golfer, a golfer to visualize that stuff or imagine it. No, I think most successful people have those thoughts and dreams before they accomplish them. And they kind of know what that's what they're working for. So yeah, of course, I always think about winning tournaments and being successful. Part of the reason I wanted to have you on is because when you say when you're imagining coming up there, even before you made the tournament, you, you do have an amazing story because. I, I, Look, I, most people listening who play any kind of golf know how difficult it is if you don't play a lot. Most know how difficult it is when you play a lot. Uh, most yeah. have no idea how difficult it is to qualify for this tournament or play a PGA Tour event. You you are in the position where you've barely played much golf for the last two years. You've had a, a, a situation where you have been a guy on the sidelines more often than not. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I've basically stopped playing towards the end of summer 2017 and then uh just picked up the clubs again in uh beginning of march so yeah i was off for a year and a half at least there and i started just getting back at you know back into it probably you know, i guess it's coming up on three months now that i've been swinging again and it has taken a little longer to get everything back in shape than i thought it would and thought the layoff wouldn't be quite as you know detrimental to my game but uh no, it uh, definitely it took a little longer. This was not by this was not by choice. This was not a break you were taking. This was injuries. Yeah, it's self-imposed. Just to get you know deal with my shoulder issues. Okay, so walk know, through this. Walk, walk us through what the what the injuries and the series of injuries were. How this thing went down. What what yeah, happened so, first? So it started uh, my senior year at Eastern Michigan University. I was on the golf team there, and uh, just felt just pain in my left shoulder. Went to the athletic trainer. Uh, the guy told me. It was. I just seemed like I had a strain in there, so just to stretch and take ibuprofen stuff like that. So that's what I did. I just did a lot of stretching and took a lot of pills to try to numb it or you know, reduce inflammation. And uh, sort of by the end of yeah, end of 2015, sort of end of the summer, I couldn't really lift my arm up anymore. I couldn't really raise my left arm. So I figured something was probably wrong, and I should uh, go get that checked out. <laughs> And they found out I had a partial tear in my rotator cuff, the supraspinatus, my left shoulder. Um, but it wasn't a full tear, so no surgery. Just did eight months of physio, sort of end of 2015 and early 2016. Uh, and so that was my first long layoff. And then uh, from there, got back playing. Um, 2016, I played some McKenzie Tour events. But, um, you know, I was just kind of come right off of injury. So I played okay. I was making cuts out there, but it wasn't really up to full potential. Uh, and then tried to, you know, continue on 2017. It started getting sore again. I went. I was in Florida for the winter 2017, um, and it, you know, hitting balls every day started really bothering me again. But I, at that point, I was kind of in denial a bit, I guess, trying to, you know, tell myself, you know, it's okay. It's not really injured anymore. It's just, uh, you know, just stiffness. Just you're fine. Um, I think it's probably lying to myself a bit. And the same thing was happening by mid 2017. It was really painful again so at that point i was like you know it's been you know by the winter 2018 would have been three years now it's been four years so by that time i was like you know i just need to take off as much time as it's going to require to get fully healed here and you know if i can play golf again that'd be great if i can't then at least you know i'm not going to live the rest of my life with a you know immobile left arm but so, that but that means it's basically been Michael, it's basically, I mean, you say two years almost of sitting out, but it's been five years really where you haven't been able to be at your best. Yeah, I haven't been injury-free since 2014, really. 
I mean, it's an, it's an enormously long time, especially as I say, when in this particular game, I mean, every sport, every great athlete in any kind of sport who plays at an elite level has to do it a lot to be good at. There's just nobody who's yeah. talented yeah. enough that they can never play and just come back and be great. But For golf, sure. especially, it's such a repetitive sport. It's such a, it's, it's so technical and it's such about the mechanics and everything else. How yeah. do you possibly stay let alone a good golfer, how do you stay a decent golfer when you can either not swing properly the way you want or not even play at all? How do you do that? How do you pick up the club and then play well again? Um, well, I've been fortunate enough that ball striking has always been the strength of my game. Like tee to green hitting has always been, you know, come fairly naturally to me. So that helps. But also I felt that just when I was off for so long, you have a lot of time to sort of work on your mental game and <laughs> think positive things. And, you know, I watch a lot of golf on TV, see all those guys, and, um, you know, it looks, they make it look easy. So I kind of, you know, drilling those images in my head about, you know, how you look at it, you know, you can do it and just kind of, I don't know if it's lying to yourself, but just talking yourself up that when you get back there, you know, you'll be able to, to do it again. So it's just sort of, yeah, it's just sort of self-talk, working on your mental game, your self-confidence, that kind of thing. You mentioned watching all the TV and watching guys cause you couldn't play. Yeah. Uh, many of those guys, some of those guys anyway, maybe many of them are here in Hamilton in Ancaster this week. Has there been a moment for you, even though again, you're 27, you're not 13 years old, but has there yeah. been any moments when you've looked and gone, wow, that's so-and-so where you kind of had a starstruck moment? Uh, you know, I thought there would be a lot more moments, but I kind of, when I got to Hamilton and got inside the ropes and everything, it all just kind of seemed like a normal tournament, like, like any other event, really. I really thought. I was going to be more like, oh my God, it's Rory or Dustin Johnson or somebody, but it was just kind of like, you know, yeah, it really just kind of seemed like any other event. There's just a lot more people around. <laughs> well, and and you're a big man. I mean, how tall are you? 6'3", 6'4"? 6'3", yeah. Okay. Uh, Rory McIlroy is actually 2'7". It, it must, it must <laughs> yeah. surprise you yeah. when you see a guy that's that big a star. Mike Weir. Uh, uh, yeah. There were times in the last couple of days when the wind was howling, I was worried he might blow away. He's so <laughs> tiny. Does it ever? Yeah. Would you ever look and go? I can't believe how little these guys are. I mean, everyone looks big on TV for sure, and then in person, you know, they're just—I uh, don't know. This kind of seems after seeing all a bunch of guys, uh, just you just kind of realize they're just a, you know they're just regular guys. They're just like anybody else. They just happen to be really good at hitting the golf ball. And again, being a big guy biomechanically, you should all the big guys should be able to hit the ball a long way. Does it ever surprise you when you're on the? In the, in the driving range or whatever, and you're next to a McElroy or someone else, that those guys that size can hit it that far? Yeah, it's a little bit surprising just when you see, you know, you wouldn't think it'd be possible for somebody that size to hit it that far. And me being tall, like you said, I do hit it pretty far, so I haven't played with too many guys that are, like, noticeably longer than me. So, yeah, it's always a little bit, you know, you wonder how they do it, but I guess that's what makes them special, and that's why they're world-class. Did you, it, today was a washout, today was, it was, yeah. it was the deluge at the course. Did you, were you there today? Yeah, I was in there in the morning, just, uh, hit, I knew the rain was going to come in around 11 or 12, so I went there, uh, in the, in the morning time just to get in the range, hit some balls and work on a few things, get my final preparation in. Did you stick around in the clubhouse for a while? Yeah, I sat around a little bit, um, cause you know, they treat the players amazing in the clubhouse. So, so what do you, you do? Know, food, food and, yeah, oh, there's complimentary food and, you know, the locker room's nice and, it's just a great place to hang out, kind of away from all the craziness outside. So. Is it a, okay, so there is a private, it is a private players only or players and family area, correct? Yeah, there's like a player and family dining area, and then uh, obviously locker rooms for players, I guess, and caddies. But uh, yeah, it's very, it's a lot quiet, even though there's 
dozens and dozens of players in there. It still seems like more just a nice kind of uh, refuge from uh, everything happening outside. Just kind of relax and get some food and watch some TV and hang out. Is it is it a social thing? Like, do you chat with anybody when you're in there? Uh, I mean, people are there in their normal groups. I think uh, kind of just like any other event you kind of see, there's kind of the, the cliques or the groups of guys that hang out with each other, play practice rounds with each other all the time. But everyone's pretty friendly and yeah, they're, they're still chatting, talking about what's happening in the Pro-Am or who they're playing with, just regular kind of stuff. But, yeah, it's, it's a pretty nice atmosphere. I, I would imagine. I mean, I remember when we've talked to Mackenzie Hughes a few times and some of the tournaments. I mean, he's been to a couple majors now. and Yeah. You know, the, the, the treatment that the players get, and this isn't a major, but it's a, it's a national championship. I know they treat the players yeah. really well. I mean, it's, it's, it's a little different than probably playing on the Mackenzie Tour or even, you know, some yeah. of those events. Yeah, I know it's it's phenomenal, and uh, not to downplay the Mackenzie Tour, no. they do a great job out there. Of, but uh, it's different. The players feel special, but yeah, it's obviously on a whole other level. I mean, I don't have anything else to compare it to, but <laughs> it's uh, yeah, it's definitely top notch quality. You feel like uh, a celebrity everywhere you're walking around. You just kind of you have access to everything. Just have your badge and kind of go wherever you want, do whatever you want. Everyone's asking you if you need anything, and yeah, you basically get treated. I mean, pretty much I feel like everybody gets treated like the Rory McIlroy when they're walking through there as players, which is which is pretty nice. You mentioned about how, you know, this is exciting. You're playing at home, and people are going to be cheering for you when they announce you. You know, I mean, look, I, I one of the great moments, I think, tomorrow, because they do, for people who have never been to a golf tournament like this, um and again, for, you know this, so forgive me, Michael, but for those who haven't heard this before, when you get up on the tee box, they don't just say, oh, it's Michael. You know, I mean, yeah. th- you get the full <laughs> treatment and it's going to be, yeah. you know, it is my, now on the tee box, it's Michael Blair from Ancaster, Ontario. You are going, yeah. that's got to be a cool moment for you. That's got to have to be a really cool moment when the people there hear, the, even if they don't know who you are from Ancaster, Ontario, you're immediately yeah. going to be a fan favorite. Yeah, for sure. I think it'll be, maybe it'll hit me a little more when I'm on the first tee, but uh, yeah, I've had like n- numerous people reach out to me just to say that they're going to come just to watch me just because I'm a local guy, which is amazing to me. I, I didn't really think anyone would have any interest in watching me or following any re- along with my story at all, but uh, yeah, it's, I've gotten tons of support, uh, especially being local, so yeah, I think that's going to be really special, and uh, okay, I'm looking really looking forward to it. Have you ever before had a moment when you get to the first tee, even if it was unexpected, where it catches you a little bit and you realize at that moment for that first tee shot, you're a little more nervous than you had thought you would be? Um, or are you pretty really. calm all the time? Yeah. No, I mean, you get the regular first tee jitters kind of thing, but I mean, that's something that you always prepare for. You usually go through some sort of routine on the range where you, you know, try to stimulate that first tee shot on the range a couple minutes before you're in that mindset already. So it's something that you, you know, it's not like you're just thrown into a new situation. Yeah, it's going to feel different, but, you know, you're already kind of pre-planning for that first shot uh, with things with your preparation. So, so uh, I will find out. I'm sure I'm definitely prepared for it to feel a little different and uh, I'm sure there's going to be some goosebumps. But it sounds like you're going to sleep fine tonight. You're not, you're going to just lie down and go to sleep and not be worried at all. Oh, no, I'm not worried about it. I mean, it's a great opportunity and I'm looking forward to trying to play my best out there and, to make the most of it so you know there's nothing to be afraid of it's what i want to do you know with my career so you know if i'm, if I'm too nervous to play golf and i should probably find some other <laughs> line of work well i'll tell you what uh, d- don't switch with me then because if i had to do it i would be wetting myself uh I've, i saw i watched some of the guys on the pro-am tees today yeah if you are not a regular golfer and these the people who again people who don't know the pro-am 
generally business people, successful people who've got a little money, pay for the privilege of playing with the pros. These are guys, and I think they're almost all guys, who are very successful in some area of their life. But golf is not necessarily it. And all of a sudden, these people who are the most confident people on the planet look like they were having knocked knees when they had to get up there and hit. And you've seen that before. Yeah, well, I've actually played in a pro on Monday as well. And a couple of guys in my group are mentioning that. There were, there's only probably 20 people around the tee that we teed off on. And guys guy sent on me he was super nervous about the first tee shot there. And then a couple of holes later, I ran into Drew Doughty. Um, and he, yeah, I talked to him for a little bit. And he, and he said, you know, I'd love to be a golfer, but like, man, he was, he said he was super nervous out there playing <laughs> golf and, you know, he played hockey in front of 20, 30,000 people, no problem. But he said the golf when it's, it's a little different, a little quieter. And even he said, yeah, it was, uh, it was very nerve wracking when it's not his main sport. What then, we only had a couple minutes left here. We're chatting with Michael yep. Blair from Ancaster, who's going to be teeing off tomorrow, first PA tour, uh, PGA tour event at the Canadian open. What is a successful week for you? Uh, I think a successful week will be. Um, I'm sticking to my game plan. I don't want to get too result-oriented. Obviously, making the cut is the goal, but I just uh, if I stick to my game plan, stick to my game, and play how I know I can, I think the results will kind of go my way. I don't really want to try to attach a number or result to it. You know, if I just do the best that I can do, I think that'll be, you know, the results will come on their own. But, uh, yeah, I just want to, you know, try to play my game and, like I said, stick to my plan, execute as the best I can. <clears throat> and, uh, yeah, just, just have fun out there and see what happens. There are 25 Canadians that are in this year's event. And one of the amazing things about this is there were there was a time not very long ago, uh, you would have been a kid, but when if a Canadian was successful at the Canadian Open, it was a bit of a shock because there weren't that many. There are 25 now, and many of those, it would not be shocking. It might be surprising because it's been so long, but it would not be shocking if they won because they've shown they can win on the tour now, Mackenzie Hughes has won, and Corey Connors has won, and, and a bunch of other guys. Mike Weir, of course. Yeah, um, sure. If you were able to finish in the top five Canadians, for example, yeah. and again, I'm throwing out some just little crazy random things, but like, are these things that at the end of it you will find or try to find something that will, if it's a good week for you, that yeah. you will try and find something that you will say at the end, hey, look, this is what I did. This was pretty great. Yeah, of course. After you know, pretty much every tournament, you you know ref, you reflect on how it went, what was good, what was bad, and what you can take to the next event. So, uh, like I said, I try not to get too attached to that kind of stuff before I play. I just kind of try to focus on what I'm trying to do out there, and I I just feel like if I if I play how I know I can play, then you know the results will come. But yeah, certainly after it'll be over, uh, you know, look back and say, hey, you know, I finished, you know, the top whatever. Canadians or top whatever player on the leaderboard, yeah, you know, it, it definitely will give me a boost in confidence for sure. Do you ever look at the leaderboard at the end and look at names, and even if your score, you may have been halfway down, whatever, and say, well, at least I finished ahead of this guy because he's a great player. I mean, the course was hard. I, I beat him. Has that ever happened? Yeah, for sure. I mean, that's uh, you always, like I said, you always look for ways to take positives. Even if the week wasn't good, then you know you try to find something. If it was good, obviously it's a lot easier to find the positives, but. Yeah, if it doesn't go your way, then certainly you're looking for something to, to help keep you motivated and keep you confident moving on to the next event. So, yeah, it's something, certain, something you certainly would do. Well, time, yeah. let me say this. Uh, this is the one area where I have had good luck in the past, talking to people. In 2006, yeah. I talked to Victor Chichelsky before the tournament. Yeah. No one else had, and he made the cut, and he was great. Mackenzie Hughes before. So I am really hoping that my lucky streak is going to continue, Michael, and it's going to rub off, and you're not only going to make the cut, 
but you know, beyond that, unbelievable things. And then you're going to come back on the show when you have the trophy in hand and you're going to come back here and you're going to come in studio. We're all going to talk about you winning it. Perfect. Yeah. You'll be my good luck charm. That'll be awesome. <laughs> Let's hope so. I don't want to be a bad luck charm. Uh, Michael there tomorrow, he is teeing off at one forty. If you're going to the course, uh, are you off on number one or number 10 tomorrow? Number 10. Tomorrow. Okay. So a whole number 10, they've got starting at one and 10, two different groups. So one, one forty at on the 10th hole. If you want to see, uh, Michael going tomorrow, if you are tuning in on TV, I don't know what kind of coverage there'll be of Michael. Well, hopefully uh, you'll be going so well that they'll have him on there, but, <laughs> uh, keep an eye for him. Ancaster guy, Michael, listen, good luck. Really appreciate you taking the time to do this today. Thanks for this. Yeah, no problem. Thanks Scott. Thanks for having me on. Uh, as I say, 25. Canadians in this year's event and many of them not out of the realm of possibility that they could contend for this. Mackenzie Hughes has won a PGA Tour event, would not be shocking if he was in the mix. Uh, Corey Connors, who has won just recently, would not be a, a shock. Adam Hadwin, not a shock at all if he were to be in the mix. Mike Weir, maybe a little bit of a shock because he's struggled with his career lately, but I mean, he won a master's championship. Um, and Michael, you never know. You never know. Let's hope. The Scott Radley Show. Weekday evenings from 6 to 8 on 900 CHML. The Scott Radley Show podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Scott Radley. Thanks again for listening, and do not forget to subscribe to this podcast. It is free. You will never miss an episode. And also, be sure you rate us and review us. Whatever you think of us, we'll take it. Thanks for listening.